You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. This is a break from the normal Britflix.com podcast service, what I'm grandly calling the Future of Film series, where I talk to a number of professionals across the film industry about the impact of COVID and perhaps look into our crystal balls and see what that might mean for the future of film, the future of cinema, and in particular, what it means for indie filmmakers. Without further ado, on with the show. Recently, as in during the pandemic, I've interviewed 20 people who are taking part in Inside Pictures programme, and we talked a lot about what does the pandemic mean for the film industry and what does a post-COVID world mean for the film industry. And understandably, everyone had a lot of guesses and opinions, but nobody had the answer because there was 20 different answers, there was 20 different impacts, and this is people who work in production, who work in distribution, who work in exhibition, who work in sales, people who work in stop motion animation, you know, there was no real full understanding of what this might all mean. So with that in mind, I reached out to people to see if I could get some opinions on maybe how they see what's what's happened, what's happening and what might happen in the future. Welcome to another Brickflix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright. And today's guest is sales distribution consultant, Julia Short. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Stuart. You're my, I think, first sort of sales distribution specialist I've had on the podcast. You might be surprised to learn. And I thought sales and distribution ran the industry, you see. There you are, I'm wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Before we get into the discussion, do you want to give a a sort of Pricey of, uh, of of who you are and your experience within sales distribution that, that that sort of makes you so expert to come on the podcast. I certainly will, and and there, there's an overriding there's an overriding theme that you might all pick up on. Um, so I came into the film industry via a uh, public relations and U- big US advertising agency background. So I work. Um, on lots of brands that were really bad for you, like Johnny Walker Whiskey, Benson and Hedges Cigarettes, um, and then went and worked for a big US advertising agency where, in fact, I worked in what they set. They set up a new division called the Entertainment Division, which was to service all the clients that were in the entertainment industry. And I got to work on the 20th Century Fox account. Wow. And I did that for about a very short time, about a year or 18 months. And this was in the 80s when film was in the toilet because DV, um, you know, VHSs had just been invented and the world of video was doing marvellously. Um, and I applied to a whole load of film companies because I wanted to work in film because I thought that when you worked in distribution, all you did was watch film. Okay, that seems And reasonable. that was what I wanted to do. 
And I found out rather quickly and very reluctantly that apparently you have to do some work as well as watch oh, films. Damn. Um, and I made a decision to go and work for an independent film company. So I was offered a job at UIP, which was the amalgamation of Universal, Paramount, um, MGM and United Artists. Um, and then I was also offered a job at Rank Film Distributors. So for those of you that are steeped in film, you'll reckon, you know, you probably know the Rank Gong Man. Indeed. And the reason I decided to join Rank Film Distributors was because they, Aish, unbelievably, they had a hundred million pounds invested in production at any one time. Blimey. They were making <clears throat> films at Pinewood Studios. And in fact, they were a properly vertically integrated company because at that time, Rank owned Pinewood Studios. They owned the laboratories that used to print the 35mm prints back in the day when they were 35mm prints. They owned Odeon Cinema Chain and they owned a distribution company. So they basically had the whole food chain kind of sewn up. Mm -hmm. And I thought that that was a very interesting model and was always thought the production was quite interesting and I knew I'd have much more hands-on experience working for a British company that was making films in the UK as opposed to working um, for UIP where I'd get sent a big brown box with materials in it and a kind of go-with-God memo at the time because it was before email. So I started working for Rank Film Distributors and worked on some amazing films, Praise, Worked on Silence of the Lambs, did the UK release of Silence of the Lambs, did, uh, worked on a fantastic film with Sean Penn called State of Grace, which I still remember, uh, and Mermaids with uh, Winona Ryder and Cher. And during the time that I was at Rank, another company uh, sub used them for sub-distribution, which was Polygram. I worked at Polygram from the beginning to the end. So I'm sure a number of you may have heard of Polygram. Polygram was kind of the first European studio that was set up where it had distribution in about eight territories um, and owned a number of production companies. So the throughput of films came from independent producers from both Europe, UK and the US. And during which time did Four Weddings and Fargo and Train Spotting and 12 Monkeys, Unusual Suspects, and a number, number of other films. Um, Polygram was then sold to Universal. I then went to a Red, Red Bus, which is now Lionsgate, and I run that for a, a couple of years. And then went to Film 4, when Film 4 had a distribution company. And I've forgotten somebody. I mean, I guess kind of the, the point I'm slightly trying to make is is none of those companies now exist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, but I'm still here. And I think that I think the one thing is that we are going through a huge amount of change at the moment, phenomenal amount of change. But we have been through change and challenging times before. And the great thing about the industry that we're all very passionate about is. Film and storytelling is much loved and we seem to survive all things. So I come from a very independent background. I've only ever worked for independent companies. I actually had my own distribution company for 10 years, which was financed by a couple of redundancy packages from jobs where the companies had closed down and I had some redundancy money and I thought what can I do with my redundancy money I know what I'll do I'll set up a distribution company so set up both pictures with my business partner Colin where we set out our, our business model was exceptionally naive and what we decided to do was we just wanted to release films we liked that was the criteria um, the, the thing that was slightly missing in this business plan was the idea of actually making any money so that we could build a sustainable business. You, you was um, going along the lines of if they build it, if, if we build it, they if, will come. If we build it, they will come. 
And through through trial and error, but just through the people we met, the producers we met, the directors we met, the relationships that we had, is we tended to work with first-time filmmakers. We tended to work with first-time filmmakers who were writer-directors. Yeah. Uh, the producers weren't necessarily first-time, but the writers and directors were. And... I'm really, really proud of the talent that we supported. So we did Bullet, you know, Saul Dibbs, Bullet Boy. We did Amara Sante's A Way of Life. We did Andrew Arnold's Red Road. Blimey. We did Chloe Bernard's The Arbor. We did Perry Ogden's Javi Lakin. Um, so really um, uh, int- and interesting enough, and this was something, again, that we didn't set out to do but kind of did by accident, mm. but it was based on instinct. Was all of our films were about women or had female leads? Oh wow! Um, even the um, and that was something that we uh, we you know you you do a five year business plan and then you promise yourself you're going to look at your business plan and see if you've adhered to your business plan. <laughs> and I think after about five years, we just did decide to blow the dust off it. And we then we were looking at that point of going out and raising some more money for the company. So we then we were kind of in the throes of writing a new business plan. And it was kind of only then that we analysed our. It was the first time in five years that we'd actually sat down and analysed our business and looked at what we had done and what we'd achieved. And it was kind of only looking back that we realised that fe- strong female stories, first time writer directors were kind of our thing and that's that was where we felt comfortable yeah uh the challenge was actually just to make it a financially viable business it was tough what you've summarized in in sort of listing all your you know highlights of your experiences like you say is that companies come companies go the industry is constantly evolving but if i can just 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 for my own benefit i think from anything else because i think marketing and selling films is a different discipline to marketing and selling other products. And you mentioned you worked on accounts like Johnny Walker and stuff. So I'd just be fascinated to know what you felt was the step change between looking after a brand, which is the same 365 days a year, as opposed to looking after a film and then another film, which is always a new product every time, isn't it? Yeah, I I, I think that was the thing. I think it what it was the ability to work on something the way you set the brand guidelines okay so if you're if you're working on a film you're setting your own brand guidelines for that film you yeah. decide what you know you're going to pitch it as a certain genre the story is going to be a certain way as opposed to working especially with heritage products that have been around for years you could come up with the most creative idea but if it doesn't fit within the brand guidelines you couldn't you you couldn't do anything with that idea. So for me, it was it fulfilled my kind it, my creative itching, mm. um, and being able to. And the great thing about movies is every single film is different. Every single film has its own unique touch points and important things to say and people involved. So you never ever get you you have no. I'm, Certainly in the independent sector, you have no opportunity to get bored or get to the stage of just going, oh, here comes another one. We'll just, with all due respect to those people that release Harry Potter and the Marvel films, where you probably, you know, is you'll be doing the same things every time. And you've got, and I understand that, you've got to do that. It would be silly not to. But the great opportunity about distributing and marketing independent films is is there's no rules. You can do whatever you like, and I love that freedom. Yeah, and I think I think that's. A, I hadn't thought of this. That what you were going to say is being like a almost like a segue into what we're talking about because I think I think that's important for all filmmakers is that you can look around at what's worked to get films audiences and seen and make a profit for investors, but each film as has to have its own in the indie sector for certainly has to have its own idea of what it is it's trying to sell it isn't like you say marvel star wars or whatever they that's like saying heinz beans well, exactly because you know and it's the classic you know what the studios called the four quadrant movie you know it works for men it works for women it plays until 25 it plays over 25 that's easy well it's certainly easier to do when you're spending five million quid on your PA. You can reach 
men, women under 25 and over 25. If in the independent sector where you're working on far, far, far smaller budgets, is you have to really define your audience much tighter because you might only have 30, 40, 50, 60K hmm. and you've got to reach them and you've got to have the right message that works for that audience. So it's for me, it's a... It's a more honed marketing skill rather than a splattergun approach and just going, oh, well, we've just got to get everybody. Indeed. Well, look, the, the, the umbrella headline we gave ourselves was what and where next for indie filmmakers in terms of distribution, um, which is obviously a massive – we could talk about that till, till I think, the end of time, I'm sure. But we're going we're gonna to try and narrow it down to four or five questions for, for you and I to discuss. Um and I think it's probably best to start with, given given how important 2020 was in terms of shaping where maybe we're going, to sort of answer the first bit, which is, where was indie film distribution at the end of 2019? And where do you think it is now? What's been the most significant changes you've seen happen in the marketplace? And what does that mean for indie distribution? What I, what I think has been really illustrated in 2020 is that the studios moved movies out of until Sony sorry until Disney did at the end of the year but on the whole all the studios pulled their releases because they couldn't get 300 500 pimp releases out in the cinema because that's their business model is, is they go, and it's going back to my four quadrant thing, is yeah. they want everybody to go and see it. So they want a lot of prints out there and they spend a huge amount of money doing that. So therefore they need a high return. Yeah. What was refreshing to see in 2020 was that whilst the studios kind of abandoned exhibition in the sense of not supplying them with films, the independent sector realised that there were people that were still happy to go to the cinema and a number of independent films continued to do very well and some probably over worked over and above anybody's expectations because, in fact, the landscape was less competitive. There weren't the big studio films that were fine for the audience. So I think on a positive note for 2020 is that for the short few weeks of the year that the cinemas were open, it was open for the independent sector and it proved that there were audiences for that. I think, and, and also it allowed for, the, the playing about with the windows and the windowing of, you know, whether you, you know, how quickly do you go to a platform? Do you release it, you know, on a platform first and then go theatrical? All the things that, and virtual cinema and everything is those things had always been kind of rumbling in the background and people were experimenting with it. And obviously Curzon have been doing it for a number of years with their platform. And I know you've spoken to Demo, so I'm sure he's explained all of that. A lot of this activity had been going on, mm. but now it has become more official since the studios have all announced their slightly I mean, how much of it will impact the UK remains to be seen, but the deals that they've done with um, exhibition in the US where Universal have got a possibility of a 17-day window, Warner's saying we're going out day and day on all of our titles this year in 2021 is, who you know, who knows if these things will last and, and obviously Disney have got Disney Plus and are putting some of those their titles straight to that platform as opposed to holding titles back to release theatrically. So I see that that the independent sector has been given a chance to show that films work. What I but that wasn't a level playing field because of the lack of studio films. Yeah. So sort of going forward, who you know, I'd love to have a crystal ball and be able to answer a lot of these questions but kind of reflecting back to 2019 i've just got some figures if any of you out there are statistic nuts which i am sadly is the bfi research and statistics units on the bfi site um 
share a lot of amazingly useful data. Okay. And I'm just looking at their fantastic report of the UK box office for 2019. Um, so I'm just going to pick out some uh, kind of key figures here. Is So in 2019, admissions were 176 million. That's UK cinema admissions, which is the second highest level of admissions since 1970. Blimey. So admissions were, were really, really strong. Um, interestingly enough, the amount of money that was taken, I believe, was less, if I remember rightly. Um, basically, cinema ticket prices are going down. Okay. So the, the number of admissions is maintained is being maintained. But pricing is uh, making it that the gross box office is going is going less. The very depressing story, which I love telling everybody, um, is that the top twenty films of that year took seven hundred and fifty-four million pounds. The top twenty films took sixty percent of the gross box office. Blimey. And when you think there are about 850 films released... It's not a lot to share out between the rest, is it? There's not, <clears throat> not many pennies left between the other ones. But it's a, a good point you make, though, because if you're making an indie film, then you are part of the 750 other films that are trying to get 40% yeah, well, of the and, money. And, and the fact that the fact that they've got here about this is independent UK films, and as that's your audience, I'm going to quote that, um, is... The market share of independent UK films was 13%. And that was 1.3% higher than 2019. But I have an issue with those figures because that will include working title films as well. Yeah, which is kind of a proxy studio, isn't it, in a sense? Which, yes, when and they're financed by Universal. So I would possibly want to state that perhaps that's not very independent but that's my personal opinion so in a sense what you're saying there then is is that if you were to i mean we can't imagine how much of that is is something like a working title but that would mean that less than one in one in ten pound less than one pound in ten is spent on independent films then wouldn't it independent films yes and then actually i've got this i've got some statistics here we are i've got the 2020 Figures here. Um, so obviously the box office figures for 2020 aren't great because the cinemas weren't open. So it was 70, 70, uh, box office admissions were 75% down on 2019. Um, That's a frightening statistic in of itself, but obviously we know why. <laughs> yes, abs yes, absolutely. Um, and actually what's interesting, this is kind of what the point is, the market share of independent UK films was 14%. So, in fact, the market share, and I think this is down to the lack of, you know, the lack of availability of studio movies, is it did allow the independent UK film sector to increase. So, there is some good news. Oh, here we are. You... UK qualifying independent films released in 2020 grossed 33 million, 80% down on 2019. So, it, so it's only gone down by the kind of percentage of the market, really. The bits we couldn't move away from was there was cinemas weren't open. <laughs> um, but going into 2021, obviously they'll begin to open as you hope, touch wood, as COVID begins to dissipate. Um so you get into a position where people can go and watch a film in the cinema again. Do you see any of this change hanging around or do you see all the all the films that were put in the long grass waiting for cinemas to open to just swamp the schedule? I think that the studios will become more... What's the word? I think they'll kind of cherry-pick what films they release theatrically. Is it worth their team's time and effort and PNA spend to release it theatrically. So if it's one of those films where it's questionable about what the revenue income is going to be, we might find that the studios decide to start flipping those to their platforms because they go, actually, it's not worth our staff and, and the PNA budget um, that risk. 
it's not worth that risk, so let's just put it on Disney+. Plus. I guess the way they're going to look at it is that they've got – that before COVID, they had a they had a every country in the world at their mercy to release the film when they wanted. And obviously, all the countries aren't going to come back on stream as open cinemas you know, you know, and I imagine for America, that for the studios with their bias, bias towards America, there's a pressure to get this U.S. cinema market opening because that's a big figure for their box office. That's a huge. I mean, they've always, you know, that's always been so important to them. So I think the studios will kind of cherry pick the films that they will release theatrically, and therefore the re- number of films that they release theatrically might come down because they'll just flip them to their whatever the you know their suitable the flip side of this though is that is the um is the emergence or continued emergence of the chinese market and even during covid they've been posting figures um from what patrick said at uh, cellular junkie on the on an earlier podcast that that is record breaking for cinema you know not just not just for china but for cinema full stop and these aren't obviously us studio films that they're getting figures like that from well, no, no. I mean, they're doing incre- they're incredibly successful of their homegrown products. Mm. You know that their home homegrown products has worked incredibly well, and obviously they have a quota system anyway for films outside of. Yeah, I think it's thirty four you know, or something that get like imported. That. Yeah, they get imported. You know what they you know they they import. So I so I. Th- I mean, what will be interesting is to see is how many of these new distribution, they're not new, how many alternative, how many of the newer distribution options will continue? Will virtual cinema continue? Because I know a lot of independent cinemas love having the option of a virtual screen because if you're taking, you know, if you're a one or two screen cinema, and you're taking money, but you've got to take one of those films off to make way for the next independent film. Mm-hmm. Is if you've got the option to still play one, you know, the film that's two weeks old in a virtual screen and still take money. Yeah. The distributors presumably happy because they're still having some sort of revenue, and the cinema are still happy because they're taking some revenue, and they're giving a better offering to their clientele. So it will be interesting to see how many of the kind of distribution practices that happened in 2020 could continue in 2021 or whether we default back to, I hope we don't, but whether we default back to, oh, no, we'll uh, stick to the, you know, let's give it a theatrical release and three or four months later we'll go on a platform. Well, look, one I mean, of the, I, I mean, you, you gave us your background as to the kind of filmmakers you were working with, certainly with your experience with Verve. And one of the things that we discussed in our preparation for this was this idea of independent filmmakers do something that will get people's attention. It's like, who are you waiting for to make the film and who are you making the film for? So what what are we, say, what are we saying there to, to indie filmmakers listening in about, you know, People who may be sitting on projects where they're waiting for permission to make the movie, the gatekeepers. Who who are the gatekeepers in terms of the UK that might have you held up in development? Great thing is, is nobody has nobody has a frame of reference for this time and this experience. Nobody can sit there and go, oh well, last time we went into a lockdown and we had COVID, this happened and that happens. And I know from my experience, there's nobody knows it's the best time. Because nobody, it, good old William Goldwyn, nobody knows anything. So I think now it's, we need to all start thinking and doing things differently because it doesn't, we've got, what have we got to lose? We've got nothing to lose. And actually, if we don't use this opportunity now to change the ways the business has operated for years and years and years, mm-hmm is we're not we might not have this opportunity again if we let it go back to how it was we might never get this opportunity again so i'm actively encouraging filmmakers is define your own reason for success if making a feat just making a feature film i 
I'm somebody, I'm, I come from distribution and sales. I have an incredibly short attention span. I have attention deficit disorder. I can be amazingly enthusiastic for three or four months. Yeah. If I am still talking about a film in six months' time, I can't believe I haven't actually released it and I can't believe I'm still talking about it. So for me, just making a feature film, I have absolute admiration. Well, writing a script, that's my first thing because I can't write longer than a paragraph, is I think you have to define your own success. So is it actually completing the script for a feature film? Is it making a feature film? Is it making a feature film and getting it into a festival? Is is getting a festival and getting a great review out of a festival your definition of success? And it's entirely up to all of us to define our own success, how we measure success. Mm. You know, a, num- a number of the filmmakers that we work with at Verve had come from, quite a few of them had come from documentaries. A couple of them would just make a couple of shorts, you know, maybe award-winning shorts. But And their, their goal they really wanted to achieve is they wanted to get an agent. They wanted to get an agent so they could get more work and they could then build a career in the industry. Got you. So in itself is you know is getting into a festival and getting a great review might be the one thing that gets you noticed that gets you an agent and maybe that's success so i think it's if we all bearing in mind all the financial pressures that all the institutions that independent filmmakers rely on probably apart from bbc films but you know champ I'm sure Film 4's budget's going to be cut because, of course, their advert revenue must have been really, really impacted over the last year. Goodness knows how many requests and, you know, needs the BFI have to cover. Is if, if we all sit here and rely on the kind of traditional sources of support and revenue, there ain't going to be enough money to go around. Resources are being spread incredibly thinly. So it's. I think we have to kind of empower ourselves to do it. Mm. I say, because oh, I'm not going to make a film, I couldn't do it. But I, I strongly encourage people to, you know, with the like, you know, there's so many filmmakers that have built their careers up just by, you know, shooting some scenes. Get, get to be good. Know your craft. You know, if you're a scriptwriter, practice writing. You know, do lot, do lots of work, do lots of scripts. It's just hone your craft and and not wait for somebody else to allow you to do it and say, yeah, no, 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 I'm going to let you do it. I mean, I know that that's, I do appreciate that that does not a sustainable living make Mm. because you probably at some point need to get paid. We all do, including me. Um, So I think it's kind of how, how do you spend your time wisely to hone your craft, move on, Find similar people to you. Find your tribe. Find a group. Of I was going to say because because I mean I guess I guess the biggest the, the easiest people to find are fellow filmmakers who might be part of what you're into doing. So a cinematographer that likes the same things that you do as a director. But I suppose it it's still it's still important, isn't it? From in terms of the investment of a film, because there are investors out there, certainly at the lower budget end who are into the kudos as much as anybody is who are making the film. So their idea of investing in a film isn't going to be all about the pound, shillings and pence return and as much about walking down the red carpet at Tribeca or something. No, exactly. And, it, it, you know, it might be that your story's got a subtext that is a really meaningful story to, to that person that's got some spare cash at the end of the year. It might be a friend of mine's getting their film financed by somebody because he's really always what he, he's got no interest in the financial recruitment he said i just want to shadow you through the whole process he said because i don't understand what producers do wow there's different ways of making you know of kind of satisfying what a financier might be looking for i mean i'm sure this is probably in the public domain but um you you must know this from keith so from um i met keith Bell and Neil Marshall in Cannes. Sounds very wanky. Um, we were drunk in a dodgy Irish bar. 
I do remember that. I can't have been that drunk because I remember it was a dodgy Irish bar. But I remember talking to them and finding out that some Arkansas spinach millionaire gave them money. It's finding and reaching out to people that might be interested in what you're doing and encouraging young talent. You know, it might be about talent development in terms of they want to invest in people. They want to invest in stories. So I think it's it's finding a wider group. And I think it's easy to stay in your... I think in under COVID times, it's very easy to stay in our same group. You mentioned about, and maybe expand on this a bit, sort of niche versus broad audiences for films. Um, your, your experience of working on something like Dogtooth, say. I might tell you the whole story of Dogtooth. Um, I mean, this is something that I would like to think is an inspiration to for, for people, is I saw... I saw Dogtooth in a market screening in Cannes. And the reason I went to see it was that Yorgos had decided not to use a still to illustrate his film, but he used an image which is the scientific equation for chaos theory. I didn't know this at the time. I only found this out after I met him. Yeah. And there was this really weird symbol illustrating this film. And I thought, oh, that's really interesting. And went to see it. Absolutely loved it. Rang up my business partner, who for some reason wasn't in Cannes that year. I can't remember why. And I rang him up. And this is why I would be a terrible producer. My pitch to him is, I found a comedy about child abuse. (laughs) To which I think he thought I was clinically insane. And he just went, doesn't sound funny in any way at all, Julian. And I went, no, it's about controlling environment, blah, blah, blah. And I went to the sales companies. Um, it was MKDER. And I went to their sales office and I did something that only I can do. So if, if any of you are listening to this that know me, you'll know that this is absolutely true. I sat in MKDER's office and I said, I am not going to leave this office until I have got the UK rights to this <laughs> film. Um, eventually, I did have to leave the office, having not secured the rights. Um, but we, they were, they were asking for more money than we had, and it wasn't what they were asking was probably a very fair price. We literally didn't have that money in our bank account. Anyway, we came we came to uh, how we negotiated that was we offered them less money than they wanted, but we took a much shorter term for the licence, and that was kind of the compromise, so they'd get the film back quicker, which under the circumstances with your goss's meteoric rise to fame, I'm sure they were quite glad to have. Um, but what was interesting on with that one was... We acquired, so we wanted to buy the film in May. We, I think we finally secured the deal in September or October in time for it to play the London Film Festival. Mm-hmm. We screened it at London Film Festival. And in the meantime, it had screened at 1,001 film festivals, of which, you know, 90% of them I'd never heard of. Um, and then we didn't release it till the following April, and it was one of those films that needed, and this is me going back to each film needs something different. That film needed a long time for the word, you know, to the, for the word of mouth and just the groundswell of people seeing it and liking it and talking to people and telling their friends about it. You know, when you're an independent distributor and you do a press screening and you go, oh, we've got, this Greek film, okay, it's screened in director's fortnight. Or was it Chris? Yeah, it's director's fortnight. Unknown, first-time director, 300,000 euro budget. So, no, you know, nobody in it that you know, and it's kind of a bit odd. It's, nobody's rushing to that. Mm. Nobody is rushing to see that film. So you have to build up a momentum of steam. So it was really a question of screening it to people, letting the word of mouth out and then screening it again two or three weeks later when there were enough people that um and on that film we launched the film on a PA budget of twenty five thousand pounds wowzer um which was a huge i think it might have been more than we actually spent buying the film and and by this time uh yorgos had been to 
Yorgos have been into London. Yorgos was a very good tool, actually, for us because um, he spoke very good English mm. and, in fact, had a great sense of humour in English. So he could communicate. You know, he was. I've heard interviews really, with him. Really yeah, good yeah, he's, he's... He was a really good ambassador to the film, for the film. Um, so we could ring Yorgos up on the Monday morning and say, Yorgos, we're out. We'd already made, we were going into profit because we had been very frugal. Um, I'm, I would like to say very focused mm -hmm. on our marketing campaign. Some might say frugal and mean, but it allowed, you know, it meant that that film was financially successful for us as a company. And again, again, it's about definition of success. You know, my def you know, the definition of success for me was I managed to acquire your Goss Lathamos's first film and I was the first one in the UK to spot it. Mm. So, you know, and again it's 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 got you know and for Yorgos and MK Durr, it was quite you know, obviously for Yorgos it was amazing, it got him noticed and everything, but it was a financially successful exercise for all parties, which is obviously kind of in, 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 I mean, obviously, did 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 the same for his career, but in a in a in a sort of in a sort of proto version of what happened to Parasite. In a way, it's there's the foreign language film that's getting people excited every time they see it. So every time people see it, they tell other people. So there's like a yeah, and and I I think the ones there's another UK producer <laughs> who I have known for a number of years who has made in incredibly well-regarded and well-reviewed films with amazing talent that has slightly struggled to make a film that's kind of done huge box office. Mm -hmm. And he decided to do an exercise and analyse hundreds of British films, budgets, cast, director, blah, blah, blah. And he sent me this... Very, very impressive Excel spreadsheet. There was not there was not a column left unturned on Blimey that Excel spreadsheet. And I said to him, I think the one thing that you're missing is is the film fresh and different. We've never seen it before. I said, because if you back column in and you put and you look at all the films that are fresh and different. They're the ones that work. And I think that's why Parasite worked. I think that's why Dogtooth worked. And you look at British films and the ones that tend to, like a God's own country, we haven't seen that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, what a guest they had on a couple of years ago, uh, Mark Jenkins with the film Bait, which, I mean, I think I think when they made that film, the way he described it was almost like they couldn't get arrested, so they just ended up making it themselves. And then... Because, because the thing is, for... For sales and distribution people, if you put that, if we run our numbers, as you call it, you can't run numbers on those films because mm. there's nothing to compare it to. Yeah. I remember ringing up the BFI and going, how much do Greek films take in the UK? To which I got a response of, there are no great films released in the UK. To which I said, great, we'll be the highest grossing Greek film in the UK. Done. <laughs> <laughs> um, and... In a way, those are the films that are really challenging to get financed and made because people that like data and some figures is you can't find facts and figures on those types of films yeah. because you've got no comparative data. You've just got to see something and believe. You know, I'm sure you know, you're, I'm sure your goss made. What well, I was going to say because this is going to it's going to segue us into the next bit. But one of one of the things that um, that Mark talked about. With his experience of bait, so once it's made, obviously they've got a film, and then, then they, then, then one of the things that happens that that gets them in the right direction is it gets selected world premiere at Berlin Alley. So mm -hmm. then you've got a UK production that's all self financed and self resourced and everything, and they go to Berlin. And Mark said he turned up and there's people queuing out the door, and he says, and he says to the um, one of the people who'd organ who'd got them there from the festival said, so what are the films playing here tonight then? He went, no, this is all for your film. And it was like basically, I think 700 people or something like that was the... And so suddenly, if you've got a film at a festival like Berlin Alley that is being watched by everybody on its opening night, that's a story, isn't it? 
they create a life of their own outside of the kind of traditional gatekeepers. Hmm. You know, it's it's the I remember going to Berlinale one year and everybody was talking about the German film Victoria, which was a single take movie. Yeah, 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 yeah. And everybody was talking about it. So, you know, your the whole mission of that Berlin was I don't think it was available for the UK at that point. I'm sure it wasn't. I think it was. But everybody's mission was, I've got to go and see. I've got to go and see Victoria because that was the film that everybody was talking about. It was the film that everybody was talking about. And almost people were talking about it because it hadn't come through the traditional route of the great largesse. We do, we do. I mean, it is, it is. It's great to, it's great to know, isn't it? Because I mean, people that love art, whether it be art galleries, films, books, or whatever, are very much. We, we all love to discover stuff. And I think people in the business, and obviously the way you described your approach to Verve, you wouldn't make, be any different in a way. You love to discover stuff. It's like finding stuff is just as valuable as being recommended stuff, isn't it? When you like when you were pitching it back to your friend, your business partner, sorry, you were yeah. you were excited by what you'd seen, not nothing else. Like, as like I've yeah. I found this gem. <laughs> yes. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. And I th- and it is, it's finding those fresh, unique stories or kind of subverting a genre is that, you're, that you're seeing something in a way that you've never seen it before. I think that's what's going to be interesting. I think that for all of you that have been developing through through this period, I think it's, it's a bit of a kind of two-edged sword. I think it's great that everybody's had that intense period of being able to develop because projects haven't got financed and they haven't got made. The problem is, is I think everybody's expectations are incredibly high Mm. because everybody's had so long to spend on development. So it's just so good, Julia. It's just so good. (laughs) Yeah. So I, I think that will be interesting, you know, is, is what comes out, out the other end, out the other side, I think is, is, Will the industry expectations be met? Because I think there is a feeling of like, well, everybody's had a long time to develop their stuff. It better be good. That's, yeah, so you mean so expectation could be higher than than delivery in some certain expectations sense. might be higher than delivery, which is so often the case in life. Yes, isn't yes, it? this is true. <laughs> but but one of the interesting things out of that what you were describing there with Dogtooth and what I learned from talking to Mark making bait is that one of the biggest things that's probably hit indie cinema in a negative way is is the. Re- removal of physical film festivals because not only is cinema screens bad in the country you might want to show them but obviously what we've been discussing here for for those outlier successes that become mainstream successes is that the word of mouth the buzz is a narrative that's that slowly gathers its own momentum and that might be um and i remember speaking to karina at um altitude about this you know that conversation can start from the from a concept poster and a one-page pitch in terms of selling a movie. Uh, oh, uh, yeah, um, um, and um, I remember a couple of years ago, you know, is people would go and see promos and people would talk about, oh, my God, have you been to see the promo for such such an amazing promo? I think for last year and perhaps majority of this year, I think, unfortunately, festivals and markets will remain either hybrid in the same way, you know, the Berlin, the market was online, but the festival will be in person. I'm going to guess that the same is going to happen with Can, but you do get a real sense that there is a real industry want and need to go back to in-person festivals, and everybody's realizing what you're missing through that. You can't online. get buzz, can you, on a virtual attendance? And if you do get fast, you get fast with you know it's all it's mostly social, yeah. it's online stuff. And it's moved on in 24 hours. Mm. You know, what was, whereas if you're on the ground, you're completely immersed in that festival or that market. That's your world. For those two or three days or four days, that's your world. You're not at home where you might read reviews for, you know, you read the deal about, you know, you read about the Apple deal on Coda. And for 24 hours, you remember it until there's some COVID news or, you know, Nick Matt Hancock said something stupid or whatever. There's loads of other distractions in it. And I think that just being in that world of film in a festival and a marketplace and being so immersed in it 
is is valuable and i think that there will be a real drive to get that back as soon yeah, as no, I, th- I think you're right and i think that's and it's an imp- i think it's an important part of of indie films success or failure isn't it is how much it can how much how much how much it can how much noise it can make because like you say you you were talking 25k pna on dogtooth it's- i don't know searchlight's strategy but we the industry is under the impression that French Dispatch was going to open Cannes last year. Cannes obviously didn't happen. French Dispatch went off into the wilderness somewhere and is still off in the wilderness, presumably going to come back maybe for Cannes this year. But that's probably, you know, it's at least a year late being coming to a festival. Now, if you're Searchlight, you can probably sit on something like that for a year and wait for the right opportunity for it. But for an indie filmmaker, do you want to sit? Are you going to? Sit, I think that's you know. I think that's why there's been no rush necessarily to make stuff in the last six months and maybe this year is because when's the festival you're going to be able to launch it actually going to be there for you to to launch it? So, so there's kind of that. There's slot at the moment. I think while there's this great uncertainty, is there's kind of plus. Obviously, there's increased costs, production costs with COVID protocol and everything is, I can understand why people are just kind of just going, actually, do you know what? We'll just sit here. We'll see what's going on in the world. Let's see how cinemas open up. We don't know what the capacity is going to be able to be. We don't know what the guidelines are going to be for going back to the cinema in terms of masks, no masks and everything else. You know, they're going to stagger the, you know, the show times a bit more and everything is. So I think that there's still a way to go till we have information to know what that festival market life is going to be like. But it will. But yeah, but I think I think the, the, the main bit is, is it is it is important to an indie film's success. We've covered a lot of ground about about the way that self distribution works and, and and the world of the indie filmmaker. It's been great having you on. So thanks very much for giving us your time on oh, the Brit thank Fritz you podcast. very much. I hope I did. I kind of covered off what you wanted. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.